All right, guys, let's go ahead and get started. We started our, our new series last week in soteriology. You guys remember what we went over? Not plagiarism. Yeah, we talked about imputation and how um, we harken back to martyology and how we have been imputed with the, the sin nature of Adam. And then talk about how Christ imputes us with his righteousness. But we spent a lot of time in the Old Testament before that looking at the Old Testament sacrificial system and how there is life in the blood and the importance of the blood atoning sacrifice. And then we wrapped up with Romans 9, or not Romans 9, Hebrews 9, talking about how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament pictures and shadows that point to Jesus. So was a, a good study. And today we're going to be picking up and going through what should be one of our favorite subjects as believers in Christ, gospel basics. So let's go ahead and pray and then we'll jump into that. Lord, we thank you for your gospel, for your good news, for your truth, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that you are the, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. We thank you that you are our king and our Lord and that you have uh, written uh, a beautiful story into history that allows for us to be saved from our wicked depravity. And God, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We pray that you would um, enlighten us even more this morning, that we would have a, a better, more firm understanding of who you are, of your gospel, and that we would be able to articulate that even better as we seek to share that with a, a lost and depraved world. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. If you don't already have a handout, we've got handouts over here for Logan and anybody else who might have missed that. And uh, as you can see at the top of the handout, we're going to spend the first little part of our lesson in the book of Acts. Here, talk about. Oh, yeah. All right, thanks. No, we're good. What? I'm trying to find my notes. Okay. All right, well, if you find something, come up with something, throw it up. Uh, we talked about how God's system is set up in such a way that blood poured out via sacrifice is a requirement for forgiveness. Because, once again, life is in the blood, the penalty, the wages of sin is death. And so that is what God requires for, uh, for our sinful nature. All first covenant sacrifices, all Old Testament sacrifices, were leading up to and foreshadowing the ultimate sacrifice of Christ once for all people. Here we talk about these different viewpoints. Pelagianism. Remember that humans are born into a state of innocence and can obey God. That Adam only gives us a bad example, but he doesn't give us an inherited sinful nature. That's what Pelagianism teaches. Semi-Pelagianism is kind of close to that. says that humans are born slanted towards God, but they can't cooperate with God. And that Adam's sin, again, was not imputed to us. And the third category is, remember, that position? Yeah, and how would you define it as it relates to 
the sinfulness of Adam. We're stained with sin. Sorry. Sure. We're stained with sin from birth. Indelibly, almost, right? Um, aside from God's grace. Yeah. Humans. What? It's too bad they're named after men. That's all I was thinking. It's like, <laughs> Pelagius was a guy, Calvin was a guy. That's just the labels that they have. I mean, yeah. it could just be, it could just be option one, option two, option three, but I know. Yeah, labels are helpful, but they also get in the way sometimes. Yeah, we talked last week a little bit about how uh, these positions were predated by these men, uh, some by a lot longer than others, but yeah. We just have attached labels to these men because they're the ones who kind of formulated and defended uh, those positions as we know them today. So Calvinism teaches that humans are born completely depraved, enemies of God, and legal recipients of Adam's sin and its effects. All right. Today we're going to be talking about the one way to heaven. And so let's go ahead and open up to our book, the book of Acts in our Bibles, and we'll take a look at some of these verses. You see that there's a, a pretty exhaustive list there in Acts. Um, let's just take a look at maybe some of those highlighted ones. I'll go ahead and start by reading off that first reference we have there in Acts 2.21. Again, remember we're looking at um, the one way to heaven. What is the one way to heaven? Jesus. All right. Good job, class. Um, there is one way to heaven. Um, only Jesus. And we'll see that there is such emphasis put on the name of Jesus all throughout the book of Acts. That there is just one Lord, one Savior, and we have to come to the Father through him. So Acts 2.21 says... And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, any other references out there? Why don't you guys just pick a couple of those references in Acts and read them out. Some of those bold references. Yeah, through 16. All right. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Anybody else? Yeah, 412. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. And if you don't know that verse, that's a good one to commit to memory. All right, I'll grab 921. It says, All those hearing him continue to be amazed, and we're saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name, and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? So, just the fact that people were calling on the name of Christ was leading to persecution by the one Apostle Paul. All right, why don't we get uh, 1043 and then 1917. 1043. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. All right, in 1917. That was a good year. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. 
This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Amen. So, we just looked at a handful of those verses, those references we see where the apostles are really highlighting and uh, pounding the, the name of Jesus is the one that, that we're looking to. That's how we're saved. Um, how do these examples in Acts repeat the idea of universalism? It's exclusive. There's, you're not talking about some amorphous way to nirvana or something like that. They're talking about an individual, one person. And uh, just know for the record that all religions are exclusive, not just Christianity. But there's only true way to God. Yeah, so they're preaching that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to God, not through the name of Jesus or whatever God you want to add to it. Was it uh, chapter 17 where um, Barnabas and Paul were worshipped and bowed down to and they said, no, that's, that's not okay. We're, we're not Zeus, we're not Hermes. Get up. There's one king, his name is Jesus. We're going to be worshipped him. Um, let's look at John. John also has uh, a number of references, much more than we have right here, that talk about the, the exclusivity of Christ. Uh, let's look at John chapter 10. And it's the, the theme verse of John, the, the main point of John uh, in John 20, 30, where he says that there are many other signs that Jesus did, but these ones I've written to you so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. Um, so that's his whole purpose in, in writing. But let's just take a look at a couple of these. John 10, 1 through 10. Who can read those for us? I can. All right, thanks, Rory. Truly, truly, I say unto you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the, sh the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by, by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pastures. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right. So that picture that Jesus is painting for his listeners there in the first five verses, that was a, a pretty common thing for shepherds in the in the day in the land, that they would actually have a herd of their sheep and they would be able to literally call them by name. Uh, hey, Logan, come here. Get over here, buddy. The sheep would listen, right? Hey, Walker, come over here. And the sheep would have a name. Uh, and the shepherd would be able to call the whole flock all together. He'd have different sounds or whistles or ways to get his flock separated from the, the other flocks that were all congregating together in this big sheepfold. And 
so Jesus uses this as an illustration saying um, that a shepherd knows his sheep and the sheep know the shepherd and he gets onto that part of the passage but he says that he himself is the door and that he is the only legitimate way for uh, for somebody to get into into heaven and there are other false shepherds, false teachers who will jump over the fence, they'll try to shortcut their thieves and robbers. And verse 10, he says that uh, Satan is a thief and a robber, right? No, he doesn't say that there. Um, but yeah, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He says, I have come to give life and life abundantly. In the next verse, he says that he is the good shepherd. So not only is he the door in this illustration, but he's the, the good shepherd. And Thoughts on John chapter 10? Why does it say go in and out and find pasture? In 10, uh, 9. Uh, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out from pasture. Um, definitely isn't something we should take as speaking of our losing our salvation. You can jump down farther into the chapter and Verse 28, uh, 27, 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So it's not speaking of being able to to lose your salvation. You can't even take yourself out of salvation. Nobody can snatch you out of the hand of Christ or out of the hand of the Father. Um, oh. You know, Jeremy, you've given any study or thought of that? No, the only thought I have is there's freedom that Christ gives once yeah. you know, once we have Christ. We're free, and um, I think that's the point that's being illustrated, but I'd have to do a little more study on that myself. Yeah. Security too, like you can safely yeah. go in and out and around. Yep. Yes. Uh, that was once uh, one of the pastors who was talking about this very verse here. He he indicated he believed it was taking this out of the Old Testament into the New Testament, so how the Old Covenant into the New Covenant by what he did on the cross, like his death on the cross. It was still Jesus. Okay. And maybe I'll look into that a little bit this week and see if I can come up with something. Okay, write that down. I'm ready to question Tyler. Next week, we demand answers. <laughs> we have context and detail. Come on. <laughs> all right. You guys are all tough on me. All right. Jump over to John 14. John 14, 1 through 6. Who can read those verses? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in me, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, that is the quintessential verse on the exclusivity of Christ, right? That is one that we definitely need to know, especially living in Utah. Um, 
nobody comes to the Father except through me, and to properly define our terms, what Jesus are we talking about, right? He is the way, the truth, and the life. And even in Mormonism, the, the concept of ecumenism is mm -hmm. spreading, that it's okay, you can have your truth, I can have my truth, because in the end, you're going to have a second shot at it anyway. So it doesn't really make much of a difference. But if we take Christ at his word, what he says, that makes all the difference in the world. Because he is the only way. All right, in layman's terms, what is Jesus saying in these different passages? He's it. He is it. No other choice. Pretty simple. Mm -hmm. We can have a tendency to overcomplicate things sometimes, but it's Jesus or nothing. Mm -hmm. All right. Why do so many people who claim to follow Christ miss this aspect of his teaching? <laughs> they're reading with their eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, they they're blind, right? Jump back to to John ten. And right before what I was reading in verse 27, um, we look in verse 24, it says, The Jews then gathered around Jesus and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. And remember, this is after Jesus has performed all sorts of miracles. So they're just absolutely ignorant right now. He's already made it clear to them. But they say, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And then he goes on to talk about how his sheep hear his voice, and he knows his sheep, and his sheep know him. So there's a clear distinction, clear delineation between those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. And to those who aren't in Christ, the cross is foolishness. Well, and also, even within Christianity, it's it's a hard truth that you have to accept that there are people who are saved and there are people who are not. Yeah. Sometimes your family members, and, and you know, Christ brings a division, and it's it's really it it's, it hurts. So. Therefore, people who claim the name of Christ sometimes don't want to follow what Christ is saying. Yeah. Yeah, I have people in my life who I'm convinced are believers, but they have a hard time saying that somebody who believes something different, fundamentally different about Christ, about who Christ is, is going to hell. That is a hard saying, but it's something that is gospel truth. We need to proclaim that. And to not proclaim that is really... Uh, hateful and hurtful because we're letting people go on believing that they have salvation when in fact they don't. Yeah. We have salvation and we fail to in love tell them what you believe is wrong then uh, we're not doing them any service. It's It might be easier for us. It's not going to cause any conflict or fights but in the long run they could end up in hell because they're putting their faith in a false gospel. Yeah, I was talking to a, a pastor recently on the phone. We, I did my internship with him, and uh, he's, he's in Indiana now, and he has a small group Bible study in his house um, with a lot of baby Christians um, and, and people who have been Christians a long time who just are thinking about things so strangely who 
don't really want to entertain the idea of sinners deserve eternal hell. And what he said to me was, it's no wonder they don't evangelize because they don't want to think about it. But if you think about it, and that's the reality, that should spur us on to get the good news out. Yeah. And um, and then there are lots of so-called evangelists who evangelize without ever warning people of the judgment of God. And it becomes much easier for someone to sign a card or raise their hand or whatever if, not, I mean, there's really nothing on the line. Um, yeah. Their soul's really not on the line. This is just for this life. Okay, I'll think nice toward Jesus. That's really the decision they're making instead of really considering the weight of their sin and what Jesus did to pay, pay that penalty. So, yeah. So we should come up with a different term other than evangelists for those proselytes who promoters oversee and make yeah. promoters. <laughs> yes. so, so. Um, so many false movements would say they follow Christ. Like you think of, I mean, like so many, but anything from Mormonism to... Um, like, oh, I can't think of the term for it, progressive Christianity, they still say they follow Christ. Um, so it also matters who, it's the biblical Christ, it's mm-hmm. Christ in the Bible, because people who say they follow Christ, but then, like, take the Bible um, and don't believe it's invaluable and don't um, adhere to the biblical Christ, then they'll say, I follow Christ. So anyone who follows that, the person of Christ, will be saved. And that's not, I mean, because they're defining Christ differently, it's not true. What they're saying isn't true. It's true that if you follow Christ, you are saved. But who is Christ? And so I think a lot of times people want to believe, well, they they believe in Jesus, so doesn't that count for something? But if if they don't believe the truth, then it doesn't. It's just an idol, a god of their own imagination that's going to lead them right to hell. And if you go back into our Christology study, you'll see the um, different ways that we we understand Christ and the importance of understanding him as being fully God and fully man and that hypostatic union and why it's uh, an issue that you can't just leave off to the side and it's definitional to who Christ is. Um, Many different things that are definitional to who Christ is. We don't want to follow after a false Christ for sure. All right. Justification by faith, another uh, key aspect, cornerstone of Christianity. Uh, key verse in our understanding of justification by faith is Romans 5.1. Anybody know Romans 5.1? Therefore, having peace with God, like, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God and our Father from the Lord Jesus Christ. There you go. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, if you guys did pick up on that, turn to Romans 5 1 real quick. Uh, I will reread that for you so we can pay special attention, attention to the verb tenses in that verse. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, what do we notice about the verb tenses in that verse? Justice. Having been justified by faith. We have, is that, that's not past tense, right? We have present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So that is a verse that should be a great comfort to the Christian. We don't have to search and strive and hope for this peace. It's already been bought and purchased, but we have it now, present tense, because of what Christ has done on the cross. It is finished, and it is ours today because of what he's done for us. Justification by faith is the doctrine that sinners are made right with God and declared innocent by him through trusting in Jesus alone. So this phrase here, declared innocent, that's a good definition for justification. Uh, it's not that God makes us innocent um, in the sense that we are without guilt in our day-to-day -day life. He sees us that way because we have been bought with the perfect blood of the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. But we are declared innocent. It's a judicial uh, declaration, just like condemnation. It's the opposite of condemnation. Uh, condemnation is something that a judge will do for declaring guilt on somebody. Even though somebody can be falsely condemned, they can be found guilty even though they're not guilty. If the judge slams the gavel down on his court bench and finds them to be guilty, it doesn't matter whether or not they are truly guilty. They're going to pay the consequence for the crime and do the time. And even if we are not truly innocent in our day-to-day -day life, we are declared innocent by what Christ has done for us. You got some big guys over there. Logan, you got questions or thoughts? It's all good. It's all good. It's, it's great. It's quite a thought, quite a concept. Any other thoughts? All right. Justification is the core doctrine of Christianity. All right. Faith. Emphasizing that faith is a personal trust in Jesus. Wayne Grudem lays out what faith is. It? Um, just like it's vitally important that we know that we're talking about the right Christ and not having and in importing a, a false understanding of Christ, we need to have a true, good understanding of faith. Again, definitions when talking about the gospel are so important because people take and twist and really pervert gospel language and make these terms into something they're not. So what faith isn't is knowledge alone of God. It says, Wengrum, that is, says that knowledge alone is not enough to save. So it's not just merely intellect, um, which for an evangelist would be great, right? If we could just write out um, facts about Jesus and get somebody to sit down and memorize and understand intellectually these facts about Christ, that would be fantastic. But that's not how we're saved. It's not just by knowing something intellectually. Knowledge and approval are not enough. Um, so just knowing something and then saying, yeah, I, I can agree with that fact. That's not enough to grant somebody entrance into heaven. Do you guys need a second for that? So knowledge alone is not enough. enough. And then knowledge plus approval um, plus you know memorizing it plus going over over and over again. That's not what true faith is. This one doctrine is what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions. Um, putting faith in somebody else other than ourselves. Instead of funneling sinners through a church or a religious system, Christianity points sinners to a personal interaction with a person. Um, it's not about what we do, how hard we work, 
which is the, the tendency of man to focus on us. But it's about Jesus, who is the object of our faith. We can have faith in a number of different things, but our faith must be found in Christ, and it must be a true biblical faith that isn't just knowledge, isn't just agreeing with uh, a series of facts. Andrew Murray says that faith is knowledge passing into conviction. That's a good word. And it is conviction passing into confidence. Faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ, a transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. It is a receiving and a resting upon him. One of my favorite verses is Matthew 5, 3, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are at their utter bottom. They are beggars, and they are without anything themselves. They are empty and poor and broken. And they realize that I am poor in spirit. I have nothing to offer. And they have no reliance upon themselves, but they transfer all their knowledge that passes into conviction, into confidence upon Christ. Justification by faith can be outlined and illustrated like this, like John Frame does, belief and knowledge and trust. You can't have um, knowledge without belief and trust. Like if you have belief and trust, then that points to the fact that you have knowledge, right? You can't say, oh, I, I trust in something, I believe in something, without first having some intellectual knowledge. So to say that uh, being able to wrap your mind around a concept and understand something isn't part of faith and, and trust and belief in Christ is an error, but it's not just relegated to intellectual knowledge. There are fancy Latin words for these. Uh, like, if you ever listen to R.C. Sproul talk on this subject, he would always be faithful to say the three Latin terms, uh, yeah. fiducia and intelligentsia, whatever the other ones are. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, those are, the, that's, those are the basic concepts. And I love that, that Andrew Murray quote was really good about the receiving and resting in. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. How would you differentiate between belief and trust? Or how would John Frame differentiate between you need to know that? Trust is existential, and it touches the, the heart. It grasps the heart, and um, how the heart will uh, hold on to uh, an understanding. So I think it would be like knowledge is knowing the facts. Belief would be the um, being able to affirm those facts, and then trust is the existential touching part. Putting aspect. your full weight on the, the, what you believed. Yes. Like, okay. So, yeah, the, on Ligonier's website, a census, like assenting to a census, is our conviction that the content of our faith is true, so factually true. Fiducia, though, refers to personal trust and reliance knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith. Can you say that last line again? Sorry. Knowing and believing the content of the Christian faith, it's personal trust and reliance. Okay. Um, faith is only effectual if knowing about and assenting to the claims of Jesus, one personally trusts in him alone for salvation. All right, if you guys remember back in John 8, Jesus was talking to uh, the Jews. Um, 
Let's see here. John 8.31 says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, and they said, We are Abraham's descendants, and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. Um, where is the verse I'm looking for? 39, maybe? They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. And he goes down in uh, verse not 48. Man. I don't know. Somewhere in that passage, he says that you are children of your father, the devil. And so he's talking about how their belief, their intellectual knowledge is not enough. That's not saving faith. And it's also misplaced because it's not in the true God of the Bible who has manifested himself in flesh. All right. <clears throat> if you want to search, it's on page 958 of James or John Franks, <laughs> systematic And I looked it up, and there wasn't a whole ton to expound upon that, but yes. All right, Keith Lambert says, faith is the instrument of justification because it is the attitude of the heart that does not rely on any work that we can perform. Faith must necessarily rely on the merits of another. And so God exalts the righteousness of his son when he justifies sinners or declares them righteous who look exclusively to the righteous son, trusting in his merits as the only ground of our salvation. So we see several aspects of what we looked at so far in there that Jesus is exclusive in uh, salvation, that he is the only grounds for our salvation, that we have to um, trust on him to justify us, to declare us righteous, and that faith isn't just intellectual. It's not just knowledge of God. The faith that saves is necessarily coupled with repentance. This word is unfortunately vague for some. Anybody want to give a stab at the definition for repentance? To turn away from sin and turn toward Christ. Okay, so two different aspects there. Turning away from sin, turning to Christ. Um, but it's turning, right? From one thing to another. It's an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement of your own sin and then turning away from it. There are a lot of bad definitions for repentance. Uh, the Mormon Church uses an ABCD method. Uh, let see if I can remember what it is. It's like admit that you're a sinner, uh, believe in God, commit yourself to Him, and don't do that sin again. So that D is really like, whoa, uh, because we know that we're not able to do that. that we will sin. If we say that we don't have sin, then we are liars. The truth is not in us. First John 1 8, first John 1 10. So to, to add that to repentance is add, right? Uh, we should not be scared of this word that is repentance. I'm speaking of it right alongside faith. They are two sides of the same coin. And for a long time, I 
was personally of that persuasion. I thought that repentance was a bad word, and it's not. It's a very biblical word. We need to understand it biblically and not run away from it because it is a, a great word, the word that Jesus uses in his own ministry and gospel call. A strictly literal translation of metanoia is <clears throat> a change of mind. However, the scripture goes further than that. So if you just look at it, the actual breakdown of the Greek meta means after, and then noise means mind. So it's kind of this idea that there's a, a thought that comes into your head, and then afterwards it is different and changes and kind of transforms the, the thinking. So it's a change of mind, but it also has a, a resulting change of action. So we'll look at that a little bit. Repentance is a recognition of personal sin expressed in godly sorrow, resulting in a mind that submits to the righteousness of Christ. That's a good place to write down a good brief definition of repentance. And again, at one point, I would have had many issues with that. And there are other believers who are true believers who would have an issue with that. But I think that it vitally changes our understanding of what it means to repent, of what it means to, to be a Christian if we have a proper definition, proper understanding of repentance. So go ahead and jot that down. Um, I heard you talking before, Jeremy, about how there's no black marker here. There's still not a black marker. That's OK. So you think I'm remedying that right now? Yeah, it's, oh, that's OK. You guys familiar with this term? Easy believism? Yeah. There are, there's a lot of baggage that goes along with that term. And if that would be put here on a spectrum, what would we find over here at the other end of the spectrum? Uneasy believism. Yeah. Hard believism, right? Yeah. Not so Legalism? I don't know. Well, yeah, we, you can go a couple different ways with that, but the way that it's used, um, what am I getting ready to write? Yeah. Um, no, close. I don't know. Uh, oh, thank you. One might be better than All right. Lordship salvation. <laughs> yeah, you had me ready to leave with um, and so, yeah, these two are often pinned against each other. And even within Christianity, again, we have to admit that Christianity is a broader term than we would sometimes like to think. We want to be in our own little bubble. But we have a, a tendency to call names in a kind of negative sense. And so um, when, when I had a different understanding of repentance, I would use this term, lordship salvation, um, in a kind of derogatory sense. Well, that's a, a lordship type mentality, that you are um, exalting what it means to, to be saved, that you are saying that you have to make Jesus lord of your life in order to be saved, and that's adding to faith. Whereas those who have a, a definition of repentance that would be defined, like we have on screen, would possibly be able to look at other Christians and say, well, that's just easy believism, and use that kind of as a, a negative term of, I don't know, 
not being nice. Like, well, well, going back to the evangelist type person before, where you're just making a basic acknowledgement that hey, Jesus is good, and you sign sign your name. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of people who will will do that and just say, well, repeat after me. Jesus is God, I've sinned, and I, I trust him with my my life. And then they'll say, okay, well, you're a Christian. Well, no, that's not salvation, right? And that's kind of what we're going to find is easy believism, just this intellectual knowledge. Yes? Well, I mean, Jesus is Lord of your life. Yes. Right? You're a believer. And a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's Lord of life, period. Yep. Um, so I guess I'm hazy on what lordship salvation is. I, I don't understand what that's saying. Exactly. <laughs> that would be a lot of people who hold to this um, different understanding of repentance would say that um, faith in Christ is enough, which it is, right? But they would redefine faith as not having to do with um, the outflow of our life. That it's not just... Uh, that it is just a change of mind, temporarily maybe, but it's not a, a, poor, a permanent change of mind that results in a change of lifestyle as well. And so they would look at, um, at a gospel presentation that you or I might offer and they would say, that's adding to the gospel. Even though they themselves might say that Jesus is Lord, they would say that that's not a fundamental part of salvation, that you don't have to bow the knee to, to Christ in order to, to be saved. Yeah, church we were in in Kansas City, it, it came up that there was some sort of a, a LGBT pride rally that was happening there. This was 10 years ago. And uh, I was having a conversation with the person <coughs> in the city, not in the church. Uh, in the city, there was a uh, LGBT pride thing. And I was talking to a guy in the church because I had heard that there was some sort of a Christian float in the parade, like gay Christian float, and I said something uh, like, you know, that they're obviously not saved. It's an oxymoron. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that obviously that isn't, they're not Christians, is what I said, and his response was, something like, well, we have to be very careful about saying that, because he was more toward the left side of that scale. Yes. Um, thinking he, even though, yes, objectively, he's their Lord, that hasn't been brought to bear on their lives yet. And so they're able to do that as totally born-again individuals who just haven't been set apart by making Jesus Lord of their life yet. And so that's more of the real-life playing out dynamic there. Yeah, I remember sitting in a coffee shop with a man once, and he was talking to me about how he's met over 200 prostitutes in his ministry, quote-unquote ministry, and every one of them has been Christian to some degree or another. And I just, my mouth dropped. I said, what does that even mean? How do you, what does that mean? First of all, to be Christian to one degree or another, you're either a Christian or you're not. <laughs> and if somebody is a Christian, how can they go on living a lifestyle of sin as a prostitute? That makes absolutely no sense. But again, he was farther over on this scale, like off the chart on this scale, um, closer to the universalist type mentality that everybody is a believer. Um, not understanding what Christ said in John 14, 6, that he is the only way, truth, and life. Because 
I have no doubt that some of those prostitutes that he met probably would profane the name of Christ in word as they do in, in their deeds, right? All right, we're getting off topic a little bit. Uh, anything else before we get back on topic? <laughs> well, and so you're down to the summing up the idea. Repentance isn't, okay, go and be perfect now, live a perfect life, and that will show you you're a Christian. Yeah. But we have so many of those truths, and First John especially, but in other places too, that if you are a believer, there is going to be a change, mm-hmm. and you're going to have a fundamentally different disposition toward your sin. Not that your sin's gone, but that your view of sin is going to be different than it was before. Yeah. And if that hasn't taken place, then you need to hear the gospel again. Yeah. And real quick before you go there, a lot of people who are on this side would say that, well, there's uh, salvation. And that's just this intellectual understanding of Christ. And then there's like this next level, which they would say, well, that's discipleship. Um, instead of understanding the two to be closely related, like we teach here, that if you're going to be a disciple, if you're going to be a learner or follower of Christ, then you need to submit to him and the two really go hand in hand. But this is like a, a next level Christian if you want to submit to that. Carnal <laughs> Christians and spiritual Christians. Yep. Andy. So let me see if I understand just say if this is a correct understanding or not. Easy believism is almost universalism. There's like no fence there at all. It's everybody, you can, if you define it as broadly as that, anybody can walk through that gate, right? If they profess to believe in Christ, period. Uh, it can be, but it can also just be a denial of the lordship aspect of our salvation. And then that's, and that's what I'm saying is one's really, really broad and one is unbiblically narrow. Yeah. Does that sound At some point in here, there's a line um, of, that is definitely not even close to the gospel. And then here's like, well, I think that's a misunderstanding of the gospel, but I'm not going to write you off as a heretic and say, you're not preaching the gospel. And the same on the other side, you can, it's just yeah. the work-based religion on the other side. Yep. Yes. And there are people who take issue with Lordship Salvation people because they'll encourage obedience in the life of a believer. Mm-hmm. And even, and so they have to, like, I, so the, on the one side of the spectrum takes issue that, that Christians are being called to obedience while the, the other side of the spectrum says we should obey, but not to save ourselves, but because we are saved. Right. Yep. Yeah, so I think both sides within those lines, right, within Orthodox Christianity, they have good intentions and concerns for the other side. Um, but, yeah, we'll leave it there. Have good intentions. We'll get to do it again in a few lessons. Yep. <laughs> All right. Um, Berkhoff says that we should not lose sight of the fact that its meaning is not limited to the intellectual, therefore, or theoretical consciousness, but also includes the moral consciousness, the conscience. So, yeah, it goes beyond just the head knowledge, right? The coupling of faith and repentance is most natural. The person who believes in Jesus necessarily repudiates all against sin, repudiates all the, the sin. Matthew 4, 17, Max 20, 17 through 21. Can we get somebody to look those up for us, please? I got Max. All right. I can grab Matthew. It's at the 
start of Jesus' ministry, and as I told you before, it's a vital part of the gospel that he preached. So Matthew 4, 17, I'm going to go back a little bit and read 12 and 13. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Um, so this is just barely going out into Galilee, starting his ministry from the very beginning. And verse 17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he went out, started his ministry, and his first word was, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, and Andy, you said you had Acts? Yeah, I got Acts. Okay. <clears throat> From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So that's Paul's declaration of the same thing, meeting with the, the Ephesian elders, these people. He wants to pass on the same truth, the same gospel. He says, you know, I was preaching this without reservation, not just for you, not just for the Gentile, but repentance from, from house to house, from city to city. That was his message. So it's kind of important that we have a firm grasp on this word and a biblical understanding and definition for it. Again, John Frame says, you cannot turn from sin without turning to Christ, or vice versa. Turning from sin points you in the direction of Christ. You don't need to turn twice, only once. So faith and repentance are the same thing, viewed positively and negatively. Neither existence before the other, and neither, neither exists before the other, neither exists without the other. Um, so to say that, Bruce <laughs> said what? Read it over here, because there's a lot there, right? Um, so when he says that faith and repentance are the same thing, they're not the exact same thing. I think we need to be careful with that, because again, there are people who are on this side of the spectrum who will say, well, it just means the same thing, to, to believe, to have faith. Well, Jesus isn't saying repent and believe, so believe and really believe, right? Um, there's some distinction there, it's but the they are not event. close to each other. Same event, yep. Um, like I said, you only turn once. And you might be able to say, well, maybe somebody can turn from sin and turn to something else. Well, that's just moralism. That's not truly turning from sin, but that's changing your, your outward lifestyle. If you're truly turning from sin in the biblical sense, and you are turning to Christ. And the and maybe one way to think about it since we still have the scale of the white work. The erroneous version of easy believism would say a person can stay looking at their sin and bring Christ into it and stay with their sin until eventually, maybe, maybe not, they start hating their sin. Yeah. The Lordship side, the erroneous version of that, looks at Christ and um, you know, says eventually, well, no, how, how would that work? It would be basically in their sin, they have to get rid of all their sin, and then they can have Christ. 
uh, if you took it to an erroneous <laughs> point, where it becomes basically workspace salvation. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's neither one of those things. It's a one-time event where your, your fundamental disposition towards sin and toward Christ changes, where you loved one and hated the other, now it switches. Yeah. And again, I think it could be possible to do that without understanding that and preaching that properly. So just because um, it's not articulated in a way that we might agree with doesn't mean that somebody hasn't done that in their heart. So the point is that you know the Holy Spirit has to bring us to the point of realization. We look at our sin and justify sin. I mean, it's it's man what he does. I mean, his depravity is so bad that he leaks. It, it's like a spiderweb effect. You can't get rid of it because you're thinking, okay, but until the Christ, through Christ and the Holy Spirit, really reveals how depraved we are and how deep it really runs into our veins, if you want to call it that, in that sense that we have to come to the realization through him and him alone that we have to repent. He is so righteous that we can't even grasp the righteousness of Christ at some point. I mean, we have to, we have to get broken. Yeah. In that true sense of the words, and not become like, oh well, okay, I understand. And I say a quick prayer, I'm good. Yeah, it's not being poor in spirit. No, it's got to be something deep. It's got to be to the realization that we have to realize how great, how righteous, how holy Christ is. To our start point, we want to repent. We want to bow the knee. We want to do anything we can to, in, in not in the works aspect, but in a broken heart aspect. Yeah. Amen. All right, got another quote here from MacArthur Mayhew. Scripture is unmistakably clear. Repentance is not an optional element, but it is an essential component of the true gospel. Those who insist that it is possible to savingly trust in Christ without repenting of sin find themselves in direct contradiction to the gospel according to Jesus and the apostles. Um, yes, <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, maybe we'll pick up there next week. Any other thoughts or questions before we wrap up? <laughs> All right. Well, somebody close us out, Kirk. All right. Lord, we thank you so much for this day that we've made. Please give us hearts of rejoicing and gladness and that we would serve you, worship you together uh, with great joy, knowing that we do have peace presently because we have been justified by faith in what Christ has done, not in anything that we have done or could do. Lord, we thank you for this great salvation as we plumb the attempt to plumb the depths of it together. Lord, give us great unity and wisdom that we would come away with, from each lesson with a deeper sense of appreciation and awe for who you are and for what you've done and that we're yours forever. Lord, we thank you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.